Well, good morning, everyone here in Facebook Live on our new cameras. I hope you're enjoying the quality. Uh, we have seen that looking back, and we are excited of the fact that you can see us a little bit better, although not too much better. Uh, so I feel compelled at this moment after that song to let's just take a moment. And let's uh, give glory to God by bowing our heads before the Lord as I feel compelled for us to pray at this moment. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful today that you have given us this opportunity to be able to hear your word. May you pierce our hearts. May you transform us in a way so that you would cause us to be more devoted to you. It is quite clear, Lord, during this season, we might get off track a bit thinking about all of the things that we can get busy on getting the gifts, on seeing the decorations, although it's a beautiful memory of when we were children, and it's great to offer to our children and to our grandchildren. Today, God, we pray that your spirit would move to challenge us to see the true meaning of Christmas. Oh, God, move in our hearts today and move in such a way that your spirit would just challenge us to love you more in a more deeper, devoted way. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, uh, we welcome you here. It seems as though we've had an interesting 2020, and we know that one of those uh, things that has, we would say that would take over our lives would be a simple mask. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately, many people will find themselves wondering, will I ever, ever have to see a mask again in 2021? And unfortunately, we will. But could you ever ask the question today that it's possible that you could say, you know what, Um, why do we have to wear a mask? Or could you even say, why do people need to wear masks in certain fields, certain professional fields? Well, we know that surgeons need to wear their masks when there are functioning or operating on a patient. We know that a umpire, an anon umpire or a catcher needs to wear a catcher's mask or an umpire's mask to protect themselves in case of a 90 to 100 mile per hour fastball comes their way. And if we think about a mask, we can maybe think a little bit further out and saying a football player at least needs to wear a helmet to cover their face because of the impact when a big player, 300 pounds, comes at you and you're about 200 pounds and you hope that you are not hurt and taken out of football for a while. And so we think about all kinds of masks and a mask is used to simply protect us as we know today, for what we're going through as a pandemic. But we understand, too, that wearing a mask could also be a point of even concealing us or keeping us back, not exposing us. I recall just a couple of months ago, some months back, I was in Lowe's, and I thought I saw my neighbor. And my neighbor, he looked like my neighbor, and the gentleman had a mask on. And I said, hey, so-and-so, how you doing? Couldn't recognize you without a mask. And the gentleman just looked at me as though I was about as weird as it gets. And my son was with me. He's like, oh, dad, what are you doing now? I'm like, isn't that you, so-and-so? And he just looked at me and said, I'm sorry, you got me mistaken. But the mask concealed him in his face and his smile. It just looked like him from the mask up. So apparently I missed it. But see, it could conceal us. It can stop us from someone recognizing us 
Or it's possible that we just don't want to at times expose us. So there is a protection, but a concealer. And as I think about, there are other metaphorical masks that we could talk about. Allow me to just turn for just a moment to my notes here and just tell you a little bit about some masks that could, we could wear. There's the thing called the cool guy mask. And the cool guy mask is an outward appearance of this person seems to be mastered whenever it takes to stay in calm in all situations. So it's the cool guy approach. Yeah, I'm going to be calm in whatever the situation comes. Then you have the humorist mask. And the humorist mask is one who is uh, a, a brilliant defensive mechanism. Uh, we all can use it. It's when we are laughing rather than crying because it's easier to laugh when we're going through a difficult time. But we may mask ourselves from dealing with the situation that we're dealing with. There's another one called the overachiever. And the overachiever, they say, is some people unconsciously pursue perfectionism as a defense against annihilation. If everything is done right, then their world will not fall apart. And then there's the bully. Um, the bully is in every environment in which we work in and play in, there's always the bully. Remember the fifth grade bully? Well, in the schoolyard, well, there can be bullies all around us. And that bully will be a person who asserts control and can be subtle, a gentle manipulation to make you see it in their way or can be aggressive or even physical. There's someone similar like the control freak, as we understand, can be someone who wants to be in control at all times. Or they say the people pleaser, and you can answer that, obviously. And then there's the social butterfly. And the social butterfly tends to be someone who's more extroverted. Um, and that person tends to be the one that is the life of the party. The social butterfly is the one who tends to be, although the life of the party, he or she, can be innately, innately lonely. He or she can compensate for feelings of insecurity and can still have that gift of gab or small talk. So we can, at times, just wear these masks and we don't realize it. So what is this idea of what we're trying to create of this Christmas unmasked? Well, we wanted to share with you that we believe that God the Father unmasked or revealed himself, exposed himself through his son, through the incarnate Christ, to the one whom has a name that is above every name. And we can call him this week Jesus as the Redeemer. So I entitled this sermon, Jesus is the Redeemer. And as we're going to look at a familiar passage, we're going to understand that it's the book of Luke. And as the book of Luke, we cannot sit back and say, oh, I know this familiar narrative, this birth narrative, the nativity set, the understanding of Joseph and Mary, and all of that has been laid out. But understand this, that the book of Luke has a, a backdrop, has a setting, has a background that is important for us to understand before we look at this. And we have to understand that Luke is writing from a perspective of highlighting Jesus Christ in a portrayal that's different from Matthew, that's different from John, that's different from Mark. Now, Matthew, when he was writing, he was writing as portraying Jesus as the king. Mark is being portrayed as he's writing, he's portraying Jesus as the servant. John, in his writings, he would portray Jesus, he has portrayed Jesus as deity. 
Now we see Luke, though, and as Luke is writing, he's portraying Jesus as the perfect man. And as you look and you see throughout the entire book, there's a highlighted specific mantra saying Jesus and its soteriological conception or truth is that, and the soteriological understanding is the study of salvation, is that he has a vision of sharing that Christ came to die for mankind, to offer himself. And so as we think of that, he sees throughout the writings, he talks about the common man. When we think about the prodigal son in Luke 15, or when we think about the woman anointing Jesus' feet at Simeon's home, or when we think about the, the comparison of the Pharisee with the publican in chapter 18, or we think about Ozacchaeus in chapter 19, you see that Jesus was reaching the common man, the one who would be considered even an outcast in society. There was other subjects that you would be even taken back by. The Holy Spirit was written and proclaimed and highlighted within 14 sections of the book. You have forgiveness as a topic that would highlight in nine, section of, nine sections of the book. The role of women in the ministry of our Lord, nine sections of the book. Again, the consistent theme is Christ's compassion for the common man. And so as he's writing and, and, and we're seeing that he's playing out and portraying Jesus, he's also highlighting something very important. And it's soteriological sense, there's eschatological conceptions and truth there. Because it is the idea of that the eschatological is the future, the hope of Christ to return. But it's called the already not yet, meaning today you and I, Christian, we have the already We're justified, we're sanctified, we will ultimately be glorified. The not yet is in the fullness of his presence. So theologically, you have to look at this book and understand at the initial point of this book, what is Luke writing about? He's starting at the beginning of the story of this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And so we're gonna go through some of that narrative in chapter one to understand the true meaning of Christmas. And so as we understand, we are touched upon the life of Zechariah. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever seen this in in Luke. Have you ever seen that? We often go to even possibly in Luke chapter 1 to verse 32, 33. We start in 26. It talks about Mary. But we forget about a few other characters. We We don't talk too much about Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. We don't talk about Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist. And so I just want to highlight some of that this morning as we walk through this narrative in chapter 1. So if you could follow with me, open up your Bibles at home or follow along with the screen, Luke chapter 1. And I'm going to just start there at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah in the division of Abjadah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and the statues of the Lord. But there was no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. They were walking blamelessly and righteous. 
Now, we have to understand that because he and Elizabeth were considered righteous. The parents of John the Baptist, walking in obedience in the commandments and the statutes of the Lord in the Old Testament. They were faithful in honoring him in their lives. However, she was barren. Now, you have to understand this. Being that she's barren, most would look in, in Judaistic or Judaism in their circles, they would look at barren as being someone who is in judgment. If you did not have a child, then God would have judgment on you. But there's a blessing about having children. To you out there who are mom and a dad, there's a blessing for having children, those who are grandparents out there, as you see. And yet when a woman cannot bear a child for their husband, for their family, it's excruciating for a woman to even work through that process. It's overwhelming because they feel as though they've lost purpose. There's no hope. And we see examples in the Old Testament of we see Sarah and Isaac, or we see of, of, of Hannah and, and, and Samuel. And in Judaism, we have to understand that people will judge you if they see that you're living in some sense of judgment. And so here is Zechariah, and he's fulfilling his priestly duties, and he's going into the temple. And so let's look at verses 13 through 17. As he does, it says that the angel said to him, the angel is present as, as Zechariah is now uh, been chosen at, by lot to enter into this uh, holy place to do his priestly duty. Out of all of 18,000 temple priests. He enters in. So this is an amazing opportunity, once in a lifetime, for him to enter in as being picked out. And it's in a biannual basis that he's walking into the holy place. Where in the holy place, there's the altar of incense, there's the lampstand, and there's the showbread. And as he enters in, he's offering incense to God as worship unto God, interceding on behalf of the people of Israel. And the people were outside And God chose to speak to Zechariah through his messenger, an angel. And you can understand this, that as he's there, the angel's there, it says, it says, do not be afraid. Gabriel says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. So we see and we understand the explanation because most would understand, we're going to find out later, that, that, that usually in the custom he would name the child something, something outside or within the family, but John was not part of the family or the name was not within the family. And so here he is, Zechariah is in the presence of the angel and the angel is sharing with him who this child will be. And in verse 14, it says this, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, here's an important thing to understand too. From verse 15, he says, for he will be great before the Lord. And they were in question of whether the Messiah is to come, so they didn't know if this was the Messiah or not. And then he goes on to say this, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is present. He will be filled. In the point of the Old Testament, it was selective and temporary for one to be filled with the Spirit. So that means there was a mission here. God had an intention for this child. And here's Zechariah wondering, wow, what would be of my child? Could it be the Messiah? And then he goes on, even from his mother's womb. In verse 16, he says this. And he says that many 
And he will turn away from many children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, Elijah was, he was strong. He was a prophet. He was bold. We saw him in, in, in 1 Kings 18 when God used him to annihilate 450 Baal prophets. But then we know in, verse, in chapter 19 that he was ready to commit suicide because the pressure was getting to him. But he had the spirit of Elijah. He would, he would be able to have that. He would be bold. He would be strong. And we understand it too. In, in Matthew chapter 3, when he was strong and bold against the Pharisees, and he said, you brood of vipers. So he stood up strong with great conscience and with great conviction and with courage. And he goes on to say this, and he says, and to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So God, we understand. Now God is telling Zechariah that your son will be the forerunner of the Messiah to come. And then we go into Luke chapter 1, verse 18, and it goes on to say this. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? I mean, this is not as though he's, he's questioning him as though Abraham has questioned him in the past, but we see that he questions him. And so that is a form of unbelief. That's a form of doubting that leads to unbelief. And it goes on, for I am an old man, for my life is advanced in years. And so it's similar again to Abram and Sarai, which became Abraham and Sarah. And we understand the angel then responded, I am Gabriel, a familiar one that we understand from the Old Testament. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you, to bring you good, this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day of these things that take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So there's important information here. First of all, you have to understand and see this, that when he's talking about to be silent and unable to speak, most would say, wow, that's a heavy judgment upon Zechariah. And how come Abraham didn't receive that? Well, God had a plan. He had to, silent or had to silence Zechariah at that point. He had to keep him silent for a purpose that we'll see later. But as we see here, as he becomes deaf and mute, the, the important point here is that he, the, the angel says, because you did not believe my words, you will have judgment, which will be fulfilled in their time, meaning there will come a time when you will see God at work. You will see, in fact, that word fulfilled in the, in the Greek is future passive, meaning it will be future and God will fulfill it. And God is making a promise there through the angel that something's about to come that you're not sure of. In fact, it's an understanding to see that it, it, would, it would highlight even further into the passage. So as we pass Mary and we pass her song in this chapter, we're going to go now to verse 62. So let's just turn to verse 62 very quickly. And as we see that, it says this, because now it is approaching. The baby is born. And the baby now is circumcised to, on the eighth day, according to the law in Leviticus 12.3. And they were to call her John. Now, we understand Zechariah is quiet. He's deaf. He's mute. He can't speak. And the others around him saying, John, John, I, I don't know anybody in your family who's John. And Elizabeth's being obedient and saying, yes, we shall call her John. And so they check with 
Zechariah. And they turned to him and they said, so they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called. Now they would say, hey, wouldn't you want to call him Vincenzo or Antonio or Giuseppe? No, you keep it in the family, but no, it's not possible. And he asked him for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. And they were all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. This is very important because now it says, and fear came all upon the neighbors. Fear came all upon the neighbors. And all these were talked about throughout the hill country of Judah. They got on their phones. They got on their social media. They Facebooked each other. They got on the internet. They went and they made sure everybody knew what had happened. No, of course not. But when it said that they were discussing amongst each other, the news began to spread out. In fact, in the imperfect, it's saying that it was a continuous news. So they had to be important. God wanted this news to be spread out. He wanted others to know about this news of the Messiah to come, but the forerunner needed to come before the Messiah. And now you got to see another thing that's happening, because the word John means this, Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. He is with his people. But now look, in 66, look at all this. He says, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. They laid up in their hearts. They were startled in the depths of their hearts saying, what then will be of this child? Is he the Messiah? They find out, for the hand of the Lord is with him. The hand of the Lord is with him. Before we go into our next section, I want to highlight a couple of things here. Zechariah experienced God. And it's interesting because here he was, a, police, a, a man who was a priest who was committed, was obedient, was faithful to God, would fulfill his duty as a priest, would go into the temple as he was called to go and do his job unto the Lord, was a righteous man. But he did not believe God for this impossible situation that would occur. And here you see this, that the Lord... The Lord's hand was with him and with his family. Now, get, 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 get understand this. What he did was he, he experienced God. And he experienced God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think today what needs to happen amongst all of us as the people of God is we need God's presence at this time. We need it desperately. We need to see and need God's presence. We need God to be moving in our marriages. We need God's presence in our jobs. We need God's presence in our neighborhoods. We need God's presence in the body of Christ. We need God to visit us. Because it doesn't matter. Let me tell you something. It's beautiful to have all these decorations. It's beautiful to have a Christmas tree. It's beautiful to go out and wonder which Christmas present am I getting this year. It's beautiful, but that's all secular. What is the true understanding of the meaning of Christmas is that we need to see the presence of God in our lives because we need God to do a work in the midst of his people. If we are his people, because Zechariah was his person, that he chosen. The Lord was with him, and we need God to be present. And when you and I experience God, then we bless him. Then we, we look to shout a praise because he's working in our lives. So God allowed a trial in Zechariah's life. He, he allowed him to be deaf and mute, and he allowed him to go through a trial because of his sin. But then at the end, he comes out, and his tongue is loosened, and, is, and he's set free. We need a breakthrough in the people of God. We need God to be at work, but we need to surrender. 
And this is so important to see that in Zechariah, we need to understand what is Christmas really about? Because he's celebrating. As we get into this next section, we have to understand that God is doing something in his people in the first century that we need to see happening in the 21st century. We need to see the Redeemer. We need to recognize that the Redeemer is for all mankind. And Zechariah begins by prophesying of it. He's celebrating. Now we see that that Mary had her song of praise in Luke 1, 46 through 56. Now, Zechariah has his song of praise here. It's known as the Benedictus. And the Benedictus, as we would say, it's a blessing. We say in Italian, benedetto, which is blessing. And so we see that the Magnificat of Mary is magnificato. You say God is magnificent, and she's singing praise to God. Now he is singing blessing to God for what he is doing. So what has God provided for us? He is bringing forth the Messiah, a Redeemer. And so I just wanted to make sure we understand that we must celebrate Christmas. We must. We celebrate Christmas because God has provided for us intimacy, intimacy with Christ, intimate relationship with him through Christ. That is the purpose of why he has come for us. And even in chapter 1, verse 68, he is about to bless the Lord. And he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. We have to understand that today should be on our very lips every day, blessing the Lord for he has provided his redeemer every day in our sanctification. We should give God glory as we just sang, as Courtney just sang along with Chriselle, that we should give glory to God in everything we do. And we have to understand we should never allow that to move aside because what was of the Old Testament was the, the, the governance of the law of God, but the governance of the love of God. And when he brought forth the law, it was sanctification amongst the people of God so that the people of God would be faithful and obedient to honor him. But it was in no intention to keep the law in order to fulfill some standing of righteousness before God. So God needed to provide the redeemer and the redeemer for the sinner and for us that he, Jesus, had to come in order to die as a perfect sacrifice for our sin, a perfect atonement that would appease the Father's wrath against sin. And so the glory of God is that he has visited his people so that we could be set free. Now he visited his people of the Israelites who could be set free because the keeping of the law was not sufficient for righteousness. But he has offered that to his people. And we have to understand too that we are included too as Gentiles because we'll see further into this passage. Now understand too that when he says he has visited, it's not just an aorist active as though it was just one time event. It's an aorist with a prophetic understanding that he is coming. He has visited. He's here because the proclamation of the Old Testament was prophetic and that it's already been proclaimed. Therefore, that which has been proclaimed in the Old Testament will come together in the New Testament. It's the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, that's what Luke is writing here. In that eschatological perspective, when you're thinking of soteriological perspective, you're seeing that he is bringing a Christocentric perspective of the Old Testament to new. 
Theologically, when you understand that God, which he proclaims in the Old Testament, will come and fulfilled in the New Testament. You and I can say amen and amen, that we can trust God's word and his promise to be true. Through his prophets, through his very word, it's now a special revelation to us, revealed to us. No more has God said, I will not conceal myself. I will expose myself, reveal myself, make myself manifest through the incarnate Christ, the Redeemer. So that's where we must find the joy of the Lord that he has visited us. That is the beauty of God. Now, even in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, in the superiority of Christ as the theme of the book, he said he had to become lower than angels because the angels are messengers of God in the heavenly realms to do God's business as messengers to speak and proclaim. The prophets would do the same. But here is Jesus, prophet, priest, and king coming. And I get excited thinking about this theologically because as he's coming, he's coming with the intention to become man for you and I. He's visiting us to be the redeemer, to become in the likeness of man. In Hebrews chapter 2, 5 and 6 says, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? So that God in his glory, in the incarnate Jesus, the word comes from heaven to earth. To show the way. Remember that old song? And so he shows the way. And he shows the way to us and provides for us a redeemer to become like man. What a servant. I long to be like Jesus, the servant. But I struggle with that. Because me who is just mere man struggles to be the servant. But God in flesh, being 100% God, 100% man, becomes the servant. That is something to fathom. And so he comes, the superiority of Christ. And then we see the proclamation. I must share this with you for sake of time, but I must share this with you. In verse 25 of chapter 2 in Luke, it's a proclamation as we see. Simeon sees that. Here's a righteous man and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit, there he is present, was upon him. And he had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the the Messiah. It's curious Messiah. It's the Lord. And he goes on to say this, and he came in the spirit in the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, for that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to be the people Israel. So the beauty that this is celebrating this Christmas, the beauty that God has come in the form of man known as Jesus, and that he, he would tell the Israelites, it's not for you to hold on to, it's for you to share with the Gentiles. So you today, Christian, 21st century, it's not for you to hold on to and bear it and make it a community where we're always around each other. We are to share Christ wherever we come in contact. We must be excited about sharing the good news, but if it's not living faith in your life and it's not living faith in my life, then we have nothing to share. It'll just be intellectual. 
And nothing intellectual changed the transformed heart. It cannot transform them. And we need to understand that. I can sound intellectual up here, but if my life doesn't change, it's a bunch of mere words. And I don't want to see it in my life. I want God to be glorified in everything. I want theology in my life to be practical theology. And that is our passion for each of us. We must see that in all of us. So he's, it's amazing. Could you imagine being this man, this person, to be able to say, Lord, I've seen the glory of your son. Whew. Today we can say that because the Holy Spirit lives in us as permanent and indwelling. Secondly, it says this, we celebrate Christmas because God has provided infinite redemption for his people. Infinite redemption for his people. See this now again in Luke chapter 1, 68 and 69. For he goes on, he says, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. See, the idea of redemption is very simple. It's not for an event. It's not an event. It's not once a year. You ever hear people, oh, see those singing, 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 jing, jingling, you. And it's, it's one time, it's, you see there, and everybody's all excited. Everybody, your enemy loves you. You love your enemy. Everybody's happy. Everybody's excited. Everybody's willing to give. They're willing to give an extra dollar for Salvation Army. They're willing to give extra $5. There's a giving spirit. There's an excitement. They go, well, it's that time of year, and everybody's singing a new song, a Christmas song. But God never intended that to be. It's eternal. It's infinite. It's available for us. Redemption is there for justification, sanctification, and glorification. God is seeing that there's a work here. This prophetic word through Zechariah is saying that he's a strong savior. The horn of salvation means he's a strong savior. It's likened to an animal's horns when they defend themselves or their families. God is a strong savior. His son, Jesus, is coming to defend his people. He's there to bring glory to himself through his redeemer, and he wants to defend you and I, his people. And the house of David is the Davidic covenant promised through the Messiah. And we understand that the kingdom and the throne will be established forever. That is the point of it, that this son, the son of God, is eternal. So he's not as though like John and Zechariah sees that. He sees his son is mere man, but he is a forerunner. But this one who comes after him will be God, deity. He is the redeemer. He comes to redeem his people, to defend his people. Even Anna, the prophetess, would make comment of this as well. She says this, for there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. And the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, have lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then was a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. And it goes on to say this, and coming up at the, at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God, to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, this passage along with Simeon and along with chapter 1, verse 68, are all synonymous of saying they were waiting for this Redeemer to come to save them from their sin, to save them from their position of hostility, to save them from eternal death, to save them from being separated totally from God forever. I don't know if you're watching. I would presume that everybody who's a Christian is watching now. 
But it's possible that you may be watching now and you haven't been sure about your salvation. I want you to know that Jesus offers it to you today. He's offered you salvation for today because his Redeemer offers it for you so you don't have to be eternally separated from God forever. In fact, if you have your last breath or something were to happen, you get in a car and God decides to take you, do you know for sure if you've come to faith in Jesus? I want to offer that to you right now. All you need to do is confess your sin, believe that Jesus is the, is, is the son of God who came to die on the cross for your sin. He is the redeemer. He would deliver you from being a sinner to a saint, from the kingdom of darkness that came the light of your son. And all you have to do is believe on him. I want to encourage you to do so today because even from the beginning, God made it clear Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hand of lawless men. So this is from the very beginning, that it was already portrayed that Christmas was for a purpose, and God would provide his redeemer for all mankind. And today, we have that today as Christian. As if you bear the name of Christian, you have that. Third, we celebrate Christmas because God has provided Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, we have to understand in a parallel passage in Matthew where he was talking to Joseph, and Joseph was the husband of Mary, but when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, he wanted to get rid of her privately. He thought that she was fooling around with another man. But Joseph had to have a visit from the angel, and the angel had to stop him before he would have done something crazy because he had a, a hitman ready to take her out in some form and fashion. And so God had to step in and intervene. And this is where it says in verse 20, it says, but as he considered these things, which those things were taking her out, not only divorcing her, but potentially put, putting her to death, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There goes the Holy Spirit again. She will bear a son, and you shall call him his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Save his people from their sins. Isn't that interesting? Again, saving them from a place of hostility, of impossibility. God was willing to step in. And in verse 22, it says this, and this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. That is Christmas. God promises to be with us. God promises us to be with us through the difficult times. God promises us to be with us when we try to mask our sin from him. God promises to be with us when we think he's the problem and not us. God promises to be with us when we have a difficult marriage. God promises to be with us when we have a struggling child. God promises to be with us when our boss is, we've had enough with that person and we don't want to work anymore at your job and you want to quit because you've had enough with your boss. When you can't stand your neighbor, when you can't stand a family member, when you can't stand yourself, God promises to be with you and I because he wants to deliver us. But we can't mask ourselves. We need to be transparent and vulnerable. Just as God was willing to manifest himself, we must manifest ourselves before God and believe that God is with us.
that he's going to carry us through the very difficult times. Luke chapter 1, 69 through 72, where we touched on 69, verse 70, it says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. That's where we come in and graft in because Abraham is a father of many nations, both Gentiles and Israelites. God is interested and he visited us and he promises to be with us. He's our redeemer. He's provided us an intimate relationship with his son he is the one that gives us an infinite redemption. And he's promised to be with us forever as he promised his son to us. And now we have to understand this, that worshiping God is dedication. Worshiping God is commitment. Worshiping God is devotion. Worshiping God is not lip service. Because that's where, that's where Zechariah came at the very end in verses 74 and 75. God in his place said, I am going to offer my son. And as you, you and I understand, it's not an event. It's not a one-time deal. It's not one time a year. It's not celebrating Christmas only. But that we have the redeemer in which we can share with the world of what he's done for us. And it's a commitment to him to saying we are willing to worship him with dedication. It's not a lip service. It's a life service to God. Let me show with you in verse 74 and 75. In fact, that's the purpose of why he came. As we see this section in 68 through 75, this is the culminating portion of what Luke is trying to emphasize throughout this section. Here's what he's saying. He's saying this, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Really simply, it's this. The word holiness means a proper attitude toward God as exhibited in action. The inward work and displayed outwardly. Attitude following by actions. Righteousness is an upright behavior. So God is saying, I've sent my Redeemer, not so you could just check it off as life insurance and saying, I've been justified, I'm a Christian, I'll go to church once in a while, I'll show up, I'll go for even Christmas, or I'll go for Easter. God is saying, I've come to send my son so you could be devoted to me with piety, holiness, and righteousness devoted to honor me so that you can share my Redeemer I've sent to you with others. That is the purpose. It's not lip service. You can't say you bear the name of Christ and you do nothing about it. You can't tell me or tell anyone that you're a Christian and there's no actions that follow in your heart. Because then there's no actions shows nothing of what God is doing in your life. Christmas is for us who are devoted, committed to him. So if you're even wayward and not sure where, you, sure where you are in your walk with God. God is even saying, let Christmas be the opportunity for you to rededicate your life to him. To saying that worshiping God is of service. That's why that word in this last passage, the word service is attached to the idea of fearless, without fear. And that the rescue comes for us to worship God. So what do we do? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because God has provided the Redeemer.
And we must worship him. We must serve him in holiness and righteousness. Where are you? Where are we? What is God calling us to be? I hope this Christmas season that God who has unmasked himself through his son, that you would be willing to unmask yourself and be transparent and vulnerable before God and saying, God, I haven't been devoted to you, but you're giving me an opportunity with service, with boldness and holiness and righteousness. Maybe this is your time. I challenge you as I challenge myself. Let's be unmasked before God because he has unmasked his son to us. The glory of heaven, the one who came to die for us and we didn't deserve it. And God is saying with compassion, I love you. I've created you. Return to me. Let me give you just a moment. Take just a couple of moments here. And as I end in prayer, May God richly bless you today and may he shine upon your heart to look to him. Give you just a moment as as we turn to prayer. Father, today, may you challenge your people to rededicate their hearts to you. Holy, righteous, devoted, and great service. May the work that you're doing in their hearts transpire into action and may transforming lives come of it. God, please, challenge us to see the Redeemer. Help us to be unmasked before you. God, there are so many people hurting out there, so many struggling through these last 10 months, so many afraid, so many depressed, so many considering suicide. So many are not sure whether they can trust you, God. In fact, they're blaming you. Oh, God, please challenge your people to take some sips from the living water, to unmask themselves and trust you once and for all. May we be a devoted people. May they who are in the world see the Redeemer in our lives through our actions, through our words. God, we surrender our lives to you today.